So we are um, currently in a series called Welcome Home and uh, preaching the, the book of Luke chapter 15 and I want to share with you a little bit, a little story that happened this week for me. Some of you have read about this. Um, others of you who may be not necessarily on social media very often have not yet heard this. Um, so I'm trying to even grasp the words. This is a crazy moment for me, but um, in all of my years of serving Christ, in almost 20 years of serving Christ, I can never even pinpoint a moment that God did something like this in my life, and He's done a lot. And, um, and so last week, Monday, was my day off, even in my bivocational job as a marketing director at Chick-fil-A, and so I, I took that, that was my day off, and I was just relaxing and enjoying a little sleeping in that I don't get to do very often. And then I got myself together and I went up to my favorite coffee shop in all of Peoria. And it's downtown, downtown called Zion um, Coffee Shop. And I love that place and love the atmosphere. And so I got myself together and went and sat down and, and um, just started working. And God was just speaking some things into my heart concerning this next, this next message. And so I started to write some things. And then the day got, got away really quickly. So I left and went to pick up my kids and then take, took care of them and got them where they needed to go. And then went to another coffee shop, the only one that is open late, late, enough, late enough in the evening for me. And I sat there and just began to write some things that God was speaking to my heart concerning this, this message this week. And... Um, and so it was this amazing time that God was just speaking to me. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And so then fast forward to um, Friday. Uh, Friday was the, was the day that I, uh, that I chose to continue working and doing some things. And, and so I sit down at Starbucks, and it's late in the e later in the evening, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, God, I had such great momentum on Monday, and I did a few little things throughout the week as, as it related to the message today, and then Friday was the day I was going to finish it all off, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, okay, God, I'm ready, and nothing, and that's happened before, so that's not the unusual part, and then I start praying, I was like, God, and I start really praying, and then nothing, and then I'm like, all right, so I turn on my worship set list, and I start worshiping, and, and then nothing, and I'm, and I, so I just, like, so I just finally said, and if, even in frustration, I said, God, seriously, I was like, something I'm not hearing, and, 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 and I realized, you know, God's always speaking, but we're not always in position to hear. He never stops speaking, ever. But we're not always in position to hear. And so my prayer was, God, position me to hear from you. So obviously I'm not in that position. So God, position me to hear from you. Just as I spoke those words, in walks a man to Starbucks. And he walked in. It was pouring. It was raining Friday night quite a bit. And he walks into Starbucks and I, my eye catches him and he's wet. And I just made eye contact with him, didn't think anything of it. He sat down in the, at the table that, facing me, and he grabs the newspaper that was already on the table, and he begins to read the, look at the paper, and he's looking over it and rustling the pages, and they're getting all wet from his hands being wet. And then he looks up at the menu, and he takes out some change out of his pocket, and he puts it on the table, and he starts counting out this change and looking at the menu and counting out his change. And I'm just, at this point in time, all I'm doing is staring at him. So if he looks at me, I'm, I'm the creep that's like, what's this dude doing? And so then I, I immediately, my default was, as he put, picked up the change, he put it back in his pocket, and he stood up, and I said, excuse me, sir. I said, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee and maybe a snack. See, my assumption was that he came in and he was hungry and had no money. And so he just looked at me and said, no, thank you. He said, that stuff's way too expensive. I'm not spending my money on that or yours. And I was like, I almost didn't know how to feel about that because I just spent $6.05 on a cup of coffee. Yeah, I know, that's stupid. Some people buy 
what they enjoy. I enjoy coffee, and that's my thing. Some folks, they buy watches, they buy clothes, they buy shoes, they buy golf clubs, they buy other things. I, I, I like coffee. It's what I do. And so uh, I kind of was like, okay. He said, but let me buy you a cup of coffee. And I was like, what? I am so confused right now. I don't know what to say. I don't know, even know what to do. And I'm just looking at this guy, and he just doesn't even wait for an answer, walks up to the counter and says to the young lady, I'm pretty sure you know what he drinks. And then she just happened to, do, to know what I drink. And I hadn't even paid for the one that I was drinking. I had just finished because she had given it to me for free. And um, he says, she says, yes, I do. He says, all right, he'll take another. And he pulls out a $100 bill to pay for my cup of coffee. And so now I'm like really confused. And so he says to me, he comes to me and he says to me, he says, you know, God told me to come in here tonight. And I looked at him and said, what? He said, no, I'm not crazy. I'm really not crazy. I really do believe God told me to walk into this place tonight. And so I did. I did exactly that. I walked into this place. And I just looked at him and my eyes started to well up. And he's like, he says, um, he says, I just felt like this cup of coffee might help to refocus your heart tonight and refocus your mind. And I just looked at him. He says, after all, he said, these words, positioning is everything. And I had literally 10 seconds prior to that moment prayed, God, position me to hear from you. And I was so dumbfounded and so blown away and I couldn't even speak. And those who know me know that I don't find myself speechless very often, but I was. And the last thing he said to me was happy writing as he walked out of Starbucks back into the rain. And I wanted, everything within me wanted to get up and run out of that restaurant, that coffee shop and chase him down, but I couldn't move. I was staring out the window, completely dumbfounded as to what just happened. Now, mind you, I come from a very charismatic background and, and, and have heard preaching all my life on the fact that God appears to his people in different ways. He sends people to, to, to deliver messages. And, and, I, I, and I've seen that and I've experienced it and I've heard it. I've had more prophetic words spoken over me than I can even, ima- than I can even count. And, and I've had these kinds of experiences, but there was something just different about this one. I stared out the window and watched him walk. He didn't drive to the restaurant. He walked and walked away from the restaurant, walked down the sidewalk until I couldn't see him anymore in the pouring rain. And it just, it wrecked my whole life in that maybe two-minute dialogue that I had with him. It was easily one of the most miraculous things I've experienced personally because in a, in, a, in a moment of frustration, I, it wasn't even desperation. I wasn't even crying out to God. I was frustrated because I had momentum on Monday in writing this message that he wanted me to write. And then come Friday, I had nothing. And I was frustrated. I was even angry. Like, what is going on here, God? This is not okay. And so then I realized that, like I said, my positioning. And so I said, okay, God, position me to hear from you. And I don't know why this guy walking in and buying me a cup of coffee did what it did. I have had many cups of coffee purchased for me. None of them with that kind of impact. I've had many conversations with men and women of God, never with that kind of impact. And all I can, I have no idea what it was. People were even asking me and I'm I don't know. All I know is in a moment when I needed him, He walked through the doors. And it may not have been him. I'm pretty certain it wasn't because it was a person. I was not imagining things. But he sent someone to speak something into my heart and my life that I had to hear. The moment he walked out and the moment I was disrupted by the barista saying, here's your coffee, Mike. It's almost like it snapped right back into that location, that place I began to write. And literally, 
wrote the entire time until they closed and said, hey, it's time for you to go. And they even gave me an extra few minutes. And it was just this experience that literally has changed my life. And I I don't even know where it's leading me or how it's leading me or what it's going to do in my heart and in my life. But I do know that it has something to do so far with the rest of this series and specifically this morning. So my hope this morning is that you hear from God the way you're needing to hear from him today, not necessarily what you're desiring to hear, but the way you need to hear. And so that's just a little bit of my day on Friday. And then come to find out this morning, somebody came up to me and said, I was praying for you on Friday, (laughs) like really praying for you, not just like, oh, God bless my pastor, but praying for me to hear from God. (laughs) So this was something God was setting up long before I ever knew that I needed it. That's kind of how God works in our lives. This whole thing is a setup. He's setting you up long before you ever know what you need from him. And so, yeah, to me, that was a super spiritual moment and an amazing experience and encounter with God that, that changed my life. And then hearing this song just speaks to my heart because it's this man just walked into this coffee shop, soaking wet, walked through the rain, and left in the same capacity, did not drive that, a car that I could see, and it was just, God, you would do that for me. And he didn't know I was a pastor, and he didn't really know I was writing, because when I, when I study, I have my laptop open, my earbuds in. I don't even have a Bible on the table, because I use everything on my screen. So all he knew, for all he knew, I just had a laptop open and was listening to anything, and he obediently listen to God. And so this morning, as I continue this series, my hope is whatever God deposited into me that night, I can somehow convey to you in, in, a, in, in a relevant way. So we're in Luke chapter 15. We've been reading the story of the, of the prodigal son, and I'm going to read it to, read it to you, and then we're, only, we're going to focus on just a couple of verses today, and that's, and that's all. That's the only place I'm going to be is in Luke 15 today. And so the Bible says in verse number 11, to illustrate this point further, and Jesus is talking about, God, about chasing lost things. He says that a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his son son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, even the hired servants have enough food, have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Verse number 20 is where we're going to start Our message this morning about, he says, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. This father gave his son his entire inheritance, and when he he had returned with nothing, depressed and a broken shell of what he once was, the father did three things. What he could have done is he could have said, I told you so. Or he could have said, yeah, okay, now you come walking back in. Now that you're broke, now that you have nothing. Or he could have simply said, okay, you can be my servant. But the Bible says he was filled with compassion and love for his son. And as a result, he did three things. And so to illustrate these three things, I've asked my son to help me. I've taken him out of his junior high school exchange group for a few minutes and asked him to help me to illustrate what God the Father has done. And hopefully this helps you to 
see what he does. So where's my, where's my little man at? Come up here, buddy. Come up here, Michael. He's not so little anymore. He's now a teenager, and he's getting taller and taller and taller. He's as tall as his sister, almost. And no, not quite. Stay there. You one day. So you're gonna, he's going to stand right here, and I'm going to walk all the way to the back here. Because this is the uh, part of the message that wrecks me more than any other. It's the father seeing his son. And upon seeing his son, he says he did three things. The first thing he did was he ran to his son. The second thing he did is he embraced him. And the third thing he did is he kissed him. Now this isn't a little peck on the cheek goodnight kiss. But it looks probably something like this. As the father sees his son a long way off, he runs. The Bible says he embraces and he kisses. And this is not just a peck kiss. It's It's that kind of kiss that the father gave him. He was so overwhelmed and filled with compassion and love from a far way off. The Bible actually says that that far way off literally means a distant too great to actually be able to physically see, yet he could see his son. And the very first thing he did was run to him and then embrace him and then kiss him. Thanks for helping me, kiddo. Love you, man. He didn't walk, he ran. The biblical definition of this word run to him, it's the same word that is used over in 1 Corinthians 9.24 when Paul talks about running a race to win. He, it's running and moving forward with maximum effort in a directed purpose is what that meant. I'm not just running, I'm not just aimlessly running. There's all kinds of videos that have gone viral lately about kids running from chickens. And they're running all over the place and this chicken is chasing them and they're trying to get away and they're screaming. And it's not that kind of aimless running to get away. This was purposed, directed, focused running with the expectation that I am going to win. That's how runners run. When they go to the Olympics... They look at the, where the finish line is and says, I'm going to be the first one to cross that finish line. That's the running that, that the father was doing in this, in this passage. It's the same one that I mentioned that Paul talks about when he run a race to win. The father ran. And then the Bible says that he embraced him. And that simply means that he hugged him. That he hugged him. And matter of fact, it wasn't just a hug. There was a specific location on the body in which the father hugged his son. And he was hugged around his neck. And embraced in such a way that it actually, the word that he, they use in the Greek actually suggests that he grabbed him in such a way that he took ownership of him. To say, this is my son. This, is, this belongs to me. I would even go so far as to say, the devil cannot have you because you are mine. And that's the way he embraced him. That's the way that he hugged him. He hugged him in such a way that says, this, you belong to me. This is the father chasing his son. Chasing the one. This is the father chasing you. He wraps his arms around your neck in such a way to say, you belong to me. And then the Bible says that he kissed him. And the reason why I illustrated the kiss like that, that probably was embarrassing to my son, but he'll get over it. He's a pastor's kid. It's part of life. The reason why I illustrated that is because that's what it actually means in Scripture in the original language. It's to fervently and continuously kiss. It's not just a, oh, welcome home. Here's your peck. It's welcome home. I can't stop kissing you. This is the illustration that Jesus is using when describing how he pursues his people. The father ran after him as if he was winning a race. And when he got to him, he embraced him 
and took ownership of him and then kissed him continuously. To say that the father was ecstatic about the son being home would be an understatement, perhaps the understatement of the century. You would think, right? You would think by all logic, okay, the father saw him and because he was gone for so long and he was so lost that he had no choice but to love him and embrace him and hug him and kiss him because after all, this is his son. And you would think at some point in time, the I told you so conversation has to be coming, right? Anybody ever had the I told you so conversation with a parent? Oh yeah. If all three of my kids were here, they would have raised their hands as well. I've had it. We've given it. We've received it. But that's not what takes place. As a matter of fact, there is no biblical evidence whatsoever to suggest that the father ever had an I told you so conversation. As a matter of fact, he did something completely different. And let's look what happened in Luke chapter 15, verse 21 through 24. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. This is the physical makeup of humanity to suggest I have screwed up in such a way that I am not worthy of his love. That I'm, I'm only worthy of being a lowly servant. But look what his father, but his father said to the servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead, has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So let the party begin. Notice what the father does not do. And I alluded to this last week, but didn't preach it last week. And I'm going to preach it this week is he never addressed the words that the son spoke when he says, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. Make me a servant. He never even addressed those words. Why not? Because the father addressed those words with the welcoming home of his son. When he hugged him and embraced him around his neck to suggest that you belong to me, there was the forgiveness of your sin right there. When he kissed him upon his face, he's saying, nothing nothing that you have done, nothing that you have said, no life that you have made even matters many more. I am willing to put my lips on your face. He came back broken, beat down, hurting with nothing. He surely didn't shower before he came. We have this idea that I have to clean myself up for God so that he can love me. No, he wants to love you dirty. Because he made you that way from the very beginning. You were made from the dirt of the earth. And God is a God who likes to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want you to take a shower and get everything all cleaned up before you come to him. He says, no, I made you dirty. I will welcome you dirty. I will clean you up. The father never even addressed his words because he had already addressed him in the welcoming of him. As a matter of fact, let's take this even to another level. Not only would he kiss him while he was dirty, but he would put these items on him while he was dirty. Because you would think, hey, we're about to have a party. Let's get cleaned up. You know, let's take a shower. Let's put on our nice clothes. Let's put, squirt a little cologne, maybe a little perfume. Do our hair, get all pretty. I mean, it's a party. Don't nobody want to go to a party after living in a pig pen, right? The first thing we say when someone says, hey, I'm going to come over, oh, you know, just give me a few minutes to get cleaned up. That's our mentality. And we take the same, remember I told you the battle is the soul, right? The soul is relating to God and to this, and to this creation. The battle is I got to get cleaned up before I can do anything. But God says, the, the father says, quick. Matter of fact, he was giving a directive to his servant to say, you better get a move on it right now. I don't want another minute to pass before you bring me what I'm telling you to bring me. That's the urgency. There's such an urgency in the father's voice when he tells them quickly. Just one word. It seems like, oh, that doesn't much matter. But that one word matters for everything in the rest of this passage of scripture. He's not saying, oh, go ahead and take your time. I'm going to hang out with my son. He's like, no, you need to get a move on right now. 
right now, leave right now, come and bring me what I asked you to bring me. And he asked him for a few things. And one of the things that he asked him for was the finest robe. So keep in mind, I want you to keep in the back of your mind how dirty he must be. He was working for a pig farmer. Now, I grew up a city boy. Don't know much about pigs and pig farming except that they're dirty. They stink, they're nasty, and their pig pen is even nastier. Some of y'all who've had teenagers probably can relate to your teenager's bedroom in the same context. I know I can. So he's dirty, and he says, go bring me. He says, he says quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Bring the finest robe in the house. Let's, let's look at this real quick. So for the rest of our time, I'm going to really break down what these items that the father actually gave to the son actually mean. Because the reality is they're far more than just a robe, a ring, and, a, and sandals, and a calf. There's so much meat to chew on in this passage and just these couple of verses that my goal is that you walk out of this place with your mind and your heart wrecked by God and now you have to study it yourself because it's just doing too much to undo your life and that's what it's done to me so I hope that happens to you but the idea of this word the finest robe so we're going to two parts of this finest and robe the word finest actually in the greek is the word protos and it actually means the most important both in value and in order is what the definition is the most important in both value and order matter of fact it is the same language ready for this this is what got me it's the same language jesus used in mark chapter 12 when he responded with the most important commandment to, is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then equally as important is to love one another. Those are the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. The word important is the same exact word used by the father when he says the finest robe. It's not, it wasn't about quality. It was about importance. The value of it and the order of it. First, love God then love one another. Both commandments equally as important as the other. Both commandments are critical to walking out life with Christ. It's the same language the Father uses when he says, go get the most important robe, the most important garment in the house and put it on him. It's not just this pretty thing. It's not just this royal thing. It's this most important thing. And then the robe itself, here's what the robe itself is. The robe itself was actually a garment worn by the wealthy elite. As a matter of fact, anytime anybody would show up in the robe that they suggest that they put on this man, it would signify this is a king. This is someone of great value, of worth. They, are, they have authority. They have a place. It was, this, they must be somebody so important that we have to focus on them. That's what the robe is. It's not your blue and white checkered thing you put on at night to keep warm. It's this thing of royalty that says God loves this man in such a way that the moment he comes back from his sinful lifestyle and he, he, he says, I have sinned against God and I have sinned against you, the father's response is, let me make you royalty. Oh, but... That's what is happening here, but did God actually say that? Yes, he actually said to you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's who God has made you. That is who God has made the one. As a matter of fact, if you flip to Revelation chapter 7, you're going to find out, is what you're going to find out there is that the multitude from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue that I have preached, guess what they were wearing? The same robe. The same exact robe were being worn by the multitude from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue in the book of Revelation chapter 7. So the idea is that God has clothed us with righteousness, clothed us with royalty, clothed us with such value that every single person around you, when they see you, are seeing God's value on you. But here's the problem. You don't see that yourself. You don't see yourself 
with that value. And no, I'm not saying you need to walk around chest puffed up and arrogant like, yeah, look at me. I got it going on. I'm God's valued person. Because the Bible is very clear what the king is supposed to do to be a, is supposed to be a servant. You know, Jesus illustrated that when he says, I come to serve, not to be served. And then would proceed to wash the feet of his apostles. We're going to get to the feet in just a second. But in having this robe placed on him, the father was telling this lost son, as well as everyone around him. See, understand, this wasn't a private moment between the father and the son. There, was, there were onlookers. There were servants. There were observers. And he's telling him that his position as son was being restored. It was an immediate demonstration of the complete approval, love, and mercy, and protection of God over him. It wasn't a let me work up to this. Let me show you my faith. Let me show you my value by my faithfulness. No, God said you can't earn this kind of protection, this kind of mercy, this kind of grace. All that it can be is put on you. That's it. You can't do anything to receive it. People think, oh, well, if I live well enough, or if I'm holy enough, or if I'm righteous enough, or if I serve in church enough, or if I give enough, then I, I'm, I'm absolutely going to earn this place with God. But that's, God doesn't function like that. That's man's functioning, and God's not a respecter of persons, so he's like not going to function that way. He's going to simply say, you're my child, you're valued, I'm putting this on you. And that's how that works. And it's for everyone around to see. It was an immediate restoration. An immediate show of love and mercy. Here's the cool thing. In addition to that, everyone witnessing the father's transfer of his, of his power, of his authority, and of his love. Saw it transfer, ready for this? From the eldest son to the youngest son. The youngest son was the one lost. The eldest son is the one who never left. It's just, it just illustrates more the value of the one. The second thing he gave to his son was a ring. Presenting this ring, a ring to someone, was a sign of affection and a symbol of being placed in an office of authority. Among the rich, it was the sign of wealth and dignity. Anybody that would wear this ring, other wealthy people would look at that person and say, oh, well, they are of great value. Now, theologians believe that the ring that was given to this particular son, this particular ring was given to this particular son, was the ring of the most value in the entire world. So that would suggest that anybody who, he saw, who saw him wearing this ring would say, this is the most important person in our world. Think about that for a minute. That God placed a ring on the finger of someone who just came out of the pig pen, likely that he had still had a little bit of stuff on his hands. And this ring is going onto his finger. Pharaoh, just to give you an idea of what this looks like historically, Pharaoh removed his signet ring and put it on Joseph's hand when he installed him as the second in command of Egypt in Genesis 41 and 42. In the book of Esther, the king took off his ring, his royal signet, and, and decreed th that decrees the government was his and gave it to Mordecai. He said, this is your ring. This was a transfer. The ring showed Pharaoh's affection for Joseph and the king's affection for Mordecai and transferred to them all power and all authority necessary for the promotion that they received as the governor and the prime minister of the land. So that might have been a little bit deep and you might have missed an opportunity to praise God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that again to you. Because the father took this ring and he placed it upon his finger. And by placing it upon his finger said, I have given you all authority. And now let's translate that to what Christ had told his believers and his disciples. Behold, all authority has been given to me. I now give it to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, let me, I, I got to say that a different way. Because somebody's still just not getting it yet. This dirty, low-down dog of a son who ran 
wild for as long as he wanted, spent all of his daddy's money, comes back and receives authority. All authority under heaven was then given to him and transferred to him from the Father. The moment that you've come home, the moment that we reflected on in worship when you were the one and you came home, God placed a ring on your finger that says, you are my son, you are of great value, you are royalty, all authority that I have, I transfer to you. So why do we walk around a shell of a human? Why do we walk around defeating and beating ourselves down because some fool told us so? Some fool said we weren't smart enough. They said we weren't, they weren't good looking enough. We weren't talented enough. We didn't have this skill or didn't have this ability. Or some crazy person said, oh, you don't, you, you're not going to be able to make anything of your life because you've done ruined it already. Look at you. You're in prison. You ain't going to do nothing with your life. You've got no value. You blew everything that you had. I would suggest that because you blew everything that you had, because you lived low down, dirty dog, you actually now have greater value than you ever had if you had stayed righteous all your life. That's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a popular argument right there. I hear you. It's okay. Let's move on. So he gives him this ring. So he, so he gives him this robe. He gives him this ring. And then he placed sandals on his feet. He placed sandals on his feet. He says, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. See, this, let's look at this first with a very practical viewpoint. No doubt he came back barefooted. Man had nothing. He had sold everything. He had squandered everything. He had lost everything. So no doubt the man came back barefooted, filthy, and probably bleeding from a journey home. Anybody ever feel like they've been beat down, filthy, and bleeding from your journey through life? Maybe not necessarily physically, but you certainly feel that emotionally. You certainly feel that mentally. This is no doubt how he came because life is a road for all of us. It's a journey and a road for all of us. And those of us that are turned towards Christ and daily taking up our cross, that is especially the case. For those of you that have made the commitment and dedication to take up your cross and follow Christ, your road is far more difficult than the person who says, I don't really care. You are going to fight a harder battle. And along this journey that I'll call life, there are places where sharp rocks will stick up in the path and cut your feet. There are places where rock appear, rocks appear out of nowhere that we trip over and fall. There is so much suffering and so many trials that happen regularly in our lives that they make us feel like as if our journey across this life was either across some sharp nails or some heated coals or something just is not okay because after all, I gave my life to Christ. My journey should be easy, said no man ever. Your journey is going to be filled with these types of things. And his prodigal son returned home without shoes. This is a sign of becoming completely destitute. I have no feet to walk on. I have no foundation underneath me. I have nothing but these bruised and cut up feet. Not to mention the sandals that he's referring to weren't just the sandals that we go and buy it. Pay less the fake leather and the Velcro or the cheap metal buckle. No, no, no. These sandals were the same as the ring and same as the robe. They were sandals that you would look on and say, that's what a king would wear on his feet. He put them on his bloody, dirty feet. This is widely considered the act of forgiveness, that I'm willing to cover your feet. As dirty as they are, I'm willing to cover your feet. What does that matter? Because here we have this story, and then we have the, 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 the fulfillment of this with Christ. When he sat down, he knelt down to wash the feet of his disciples. What did he say? He said, all a man needs to be clean is that his feet are clean. And he says, I'm going to wash them clean. 
See, forgiveness would be empty without restoration. Forgiveness is wonderful. It'd be empty without restoration. The son came home, was forgiven, but forgiveness was not where it stopped. He was restored to every privilege that he had that he had forfeited because of his sin. God's not in just the forgiving business, but in the restoration business. God brings forgiveness to your heart, cleanses you, cleans you out, and then restores you back to where he wants you to be. Matter of fact, he restores you to places you never have been before. Because God is a God of restoration. He is a God of reconciliation. He is trying to draw you to himself so he can put you in places and in seats that you have no business sitting in. Because can I tell you right now, I have no business standing up here preaching the gospel. None. Not based on my past life, nor based on my sin life, nor based on what I may do in the future. I have no business standing up here preaching the gospel, except that God said I should. Someone who spent years of their life in prison has got no business going into the prison preaching the gospel, because after all, they are just a prisoner. But God said, no, I have forgiven you. Now I am restoring you to use all that you have been through to then bring about the gospel. Because that's God, that's the God that we serve. So if you bear the name son or daughter of Christ, you have received Christ as Lord and Savior. The power of the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You now day to day have favor with God. My, the anthem of my life that I think I had forgotten for a short time is in Proverbs chapter 3, the first four verses, that if I love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, I love other people, I hang the law of God around my neck as a tablet upon my chest that I will find favor with God and favor with man. That's my paraphrase of, of Proverbs 3, 1 through 4. That because I love God, because I hang his law around my neck, meaning that I hide his word in my heart, I will find favor with God and favor with man. The whole point of restoration, the whole point of forgiveness is favor. It's not, it's not favor ain't fair, it's just favor. It's unmerited. You don't deserve it. Nothing. And you can look at folks all day long and say, well, why do they get that? I don't get that. Why do they get that? You know why? Because favor ain't fair. It's just favor. It's the bottom line. And, and here's what I will say. This is not even in my notes. I'm just kind of feeling this right now. But the whole idea of this favor thing, let me tell you, who, you know who receives favor? Those who look for favor. Those who acknowledge favor. So here's a question for you. When you pull into a grocery store or a Walmart or any other a mall or whatever on a Saturday afternoon and it's busy and you find a parking spot right up front, you look at that and say, oh, look how lucky I was. That's cool. I look at it and say, "Woo, God favored me today. And you might think that's foolishness. Or when I walked into Starbucks on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and I walked up and I ordered my triple grande caramel macchiato as I've been doing for years, and she says, oh, it's on me. I'm like, oh, God's favored me today. You might think that's foolishness, but here's the reality. Because I see God favoring me in these little things, what do you think he does in big things? So if you're not experiencing God's favor in something big, maybe you should start looking for something small to praise him for. Because then you might see his hand move in big ways. I've, I, I actually said, God, you favored me with a free cup of coffee on Friday afternoon. And then he sent someone to speak into my heart on Friday night. My small favor turned into a big favor that has actually reshaped and changed my life. And I got to move because I'm running out of time. I'll preach until the movie starts. And we'll have a problem. So he, the son comes home, he puts on this robe, he gives him this ring, he puts sandals on his feet, and then he says, go get the calf. You know the one, the one that we've been fattening for all this time, the one that we have been feeding and feeding because we want it to be nice and big and plump so we can eat this guy. He says, go get that calf, go get that and then here, here's what you have to understand. In this, in this context, this was, they said, and kill it. 
Understand that this killing is not a slaughtering for meat. This killing, the word kill in this context literally means sacrificed to God. So it was meant for the, the atonement of sin and the people who were about to party were going to party on some divine meat. All because the son who was lost came home. It wasn't just let's slaughter this cow and eat it. It was let's atone for our sin. The prodigal son came home starving and this calf was killed for him. Remember what it was that drove him back. It wasn't a realization that he had been sinning. That was just going to be his way to get in the door to get some food in his belly. He said, I was starving. I'll go home and then tell my father. He, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing to suggest that the son actually was truly repentant. He just came and said, Father, I've, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven and Make me a servant. Why? Because previously he said even a servant has food. His motives to coming back was because he was hungry. People look at this and say, oh, this great repentant moment with the son. I don't believe that's what it was. I believe he was just hungry. He needed some food. Even the servant had food. He says, I'm going to go back. He didn't go back because he missed his family. He didn't go back because of any other reason except that he was hungry, he was broke, he was destitute, he was poor, he was beat down, he was hurting, and he says, I got to get some food in my belly. I am so thankful, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that even when my motives are selfish for me, that God sees something in me and rewards me openly, even though my motives don't even suggest that I deserve it. Not only by my life don't I deserve it, I don't deserve it because my motives aren't even pure. I'm just hungry. God just feet. Matter of fact, I will tell you on Friday night, my motives weren't pure. I didn't want to hear from God because I needed to hear from God. I wanted to hear from God because I had something to preach today. And what did he do? He still showed up because that's the reckless love of our God that Jesus defined as being normal. This man was completely content in destroying his life, wasting his inheritance for the sake of a party. And he was about to experience a party that he's never experienced before because the same party that is referenced at the end of this idea, the section of pastor, when it's of, 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 Scripture is, he says, so let the party begin. This party is the same reference that Jesus used when he said, when he was throwing the, when he preached a parable of the banquet, and he said, go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come and sit at my table. It's the same party that he was referencing then. He's go compel them to sit at my table. What is at the table of God? The table of God, there's forgiveness. The table of God, there is mercy. There's grace. There's love. There's restoration. There's power. There's authority. There's value. There's an establishment of who you are in Christ. That's the party he was about to attend. And oh, by the way, we're going to eat too. Matter of fact, this is the kind of party that it was in Luke chapter 15, verse number 10. Our worship team, if you could come and get set, I'm going to close with this thought. In Luke 15, 10, at the end, and I just read this in our time of worship, and at the end of the idea of this chasing one, leaving 99 and chasing one, the Bible says, in the same way, there is a joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. In the same way, there is a joy in the presence of God's angels that when even one sinner repents. That word joy is an outward expression of excitement. So when one person, when that one comes back to Christ, all of heaven is partying. That's the party the son came home to. Everyone who was at that party was surely talking about the lavished love of the father on an undeserving son. Because they know. Come on now. This is, still, this is still people. How much talk do you think there was when he left? 
How much gossip do you think there was when the son took his inheritance and then took off and said, I'm going to go do it? And I guarantee folks will be like, can you believe his son? He's out there partying it up. He's wasting all that money. He's, he's spending it on wild living and women and drugs and partying and, and food. And he's just living it up. And, and, and he's out there doing that. What, what kind of father lets his son do? You know what they're saying? It's the same things they say about you. It's the same things they say about me. And then when they all come together and you see that, you see this beautiful reunion and you see the father's love lavished on his son, they're saying the same thing. They're looking at him like, why does he deserve that? Don't they, doesn't he remember what he used to do? Doesn't he remember what he was doing? The party benefited the son, no doubt, because it showed the greatness of, God, of the father. Because here's the thing, if the father would have thrown a party for the older son, ready for this? If the father would have thrown a party for the older son, everybody would have looked and said, that's how you're supposed to act. That's how you're supposed to behave. That's when you get the love. What did the older son do? Never left. Always lived righteous. Always served God. And I'm not suggesting you need to go out and wildly live and party. But what I'm saying is that when we have fallen, God's there to bring us home and throw this party that is so astronomically beautiful people can't help but see what it is and what it's about everyone there would have thought look at how praiseworthy the older son must be for the father to throw him such a party Jesus is saying throughout the whole parable to the Pharisees and sinners I welcome those who know they need me because I am the point anyway. I welcome those who need me because it's all about me anyway. You and your self-effort were never supposed to be the focus. It was that self-effort, that self-focus, what led the son to that wild living anyway. He's saying, I love you because I am love. I'm going to die for you because that's the kind of God that I am. I want you back in my arms, not because your speech or repentance. I want you back in my arms because I am full of compassion and love. That's how it all started with the son. Filled with compassion, filled with love. He embraced his son and kissed him.